So, holy, holy, holy. Isn't that a great uh, hymn of, of praise to God's power and God's holiness and God's majesty? Um, this is a God who reveals himself to us as a trinity. God in three persons, blessed trinity. Um, I have here a sewing thimble. Kind of small. What would it be like if I tried to put the Pacific Ocean in this thimble? Can't do it, right? No way that would happen. Well, in, in many ways, trying to capture the awesomeness, the majesty, the power, the glory of God in a song like Holy, 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 or Maybe Chris Tomlin's, you know, How Great Is Our God, or any 101 other kinds of psalms of praise would be just as difficult. In fact, the whole universe really cannot contain the wonder of God, His power, His wisdom, His holiness, His mercy, His grace. Um, God is so far beyond anything that you and I could ever think or, or, or seek to grasp in many ways. I mean, He's like the Pacific Ocean compared to our thimble of the ability to understand and grasp the significance of who God really is. And, and, you know, the fact of the matter is that this side of eternity, none of us are ever going to comprehend fully who God is and the character of God. Um, it's hard to picture who God really is. Perhaps you heard the story of the little uh, girl who came to her mother and said, Mama, Mama, I'm going to draw a picture of God. And the mother said, well, honey, nobody knows what God looks like. And with the, the brashness and confidence of a five-year-old, she exclaimed, well, when I get finished, they will know what he looks like, you know. Well, I know that my, as a child, my view of God was impacted by a picture. We had a family Bible, and in the early pages of that Bible was a, this, this drawing, this painting of a white-haired man in long flowing robes standing on a cloud looking over the creation of the world. And, and that impacted me as a child. That you know, was kind of my picture of God. How do you picture God? Uh, maybe your picture of God arises out of the book of Revelation when you see that, that throne surrounded by that sea of glass and with that emerald, uh, the glow of that emerald rainbow coming uh, from behind the, the throne. Uh, Maybe you see a king on a throne in one of those uh, throne rooms that come out of, uh, out of Europe in those, in those ages of years ago when kings sat on thrones. Maybe that's your image of what God is like. Maybe it's thunder and lightning and lights and loud booming sounds, kind of like the, the, the scene in The Wizard of Oz when they went in to see the wizard and, and this scary kind of experience. What do you picture God as? What, what's He like? You see, how we, in, how we picture God how we think of God, how we, how we relate to God is the most important of all truths that, that we have in this world. It makes or it breaks our life for all of our life. As we look at the Bible, there are three very important statements that are made concerning God. First of all, the Bible tells us that God is real. God is real. God is not some kind of fictional character in a story or, or maybe a, a kind of a fairy tale or anything like that. No, He is as real as we are and, and you know, probably more real than, than you and I are, okay? 
So how do we know that God exists? And we could spend some time this morning looking at all of those philosophical arguments for God. You know, the, the ontological and the teleological and the cosmological uh, evidence for the existence of God. Or we could delve into physics and we could look at the latest, uh, the latest findings that validate the existence of God. We could delve into biology and we could look at, you know, intelligent design and design by uh, creation by design. We could look at all of those things. But the problem with that is that when we do that, it makes the belief in God's existence to be very complicated, to be very uh, complex. And we don't want to do that, okay? So let's take our cue from the Bible, because the Bible, believe it or not, never, <coughs> excuse me, never presents arguments for the existence of God. The Bible just assumes God. In fact, the very first verse of the Bible says, for in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, and if you're like me, um, and I know you are, okay, there are moments when you suddenly think, is this God thing really for real? Is there really a God? Or am I just fooling myself in all of this? Uh, we, can, we can go and kind of do that, but there are good reasons why over 90% of Americans believe in a personal God. I mean, to the vast majority, the fact that there is a God is something they learn by intuition. So let me give you three reasons why we can, why through our intuition, we, we know that God exists. Number one, we see God's creativity in all that He, that he created and all that He made, okay? Look at Psalm, 19, uh, one, excuse me, Psalm 19, beginning at verse 1. It says, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make Him known. You know, if you and I go outside on a dark night here in, in uh, our part of, of Nevada, and you can look up, you can see stars everywhere. And, and just as far as you can see, there are stars, evidences, witnesses to the fact that God does exist. The universe displays His majesty. Uh, think about it. You can get on a, on a spaceship and we could leave this planet Earth and we could travel at the speed of light of 169,282 miles per second and go to the edge of the universe as we know it, as we can see it through the telescopes, we'd get to that edge and it would have taken us 12 billion years to get there. That's how vast our universe is. And we don't know what's beyond that because our telescopes can't see beyond that. And yet, think about what, the, the, what Isaiah said in, in, his, in his writings. He said this, of God. He says, who else has held the oceans in his hand? I mean, God can put Pacific Ocean in a thimble, can he? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? In other words, God measures space, the universe, by the breadth of his hand. That, my friends, is incredible. Isn't that amazing? This is the God that you and I serve. So through creation, we can see the immensity and the power of God. But secondly, we see God's thumbprint on human history. 
throughout history, you see God's thumbprint that's there in Acts chapter 17, beginning of verse 26. It says, from one man, he, meaning God, created all the nations through the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. What that's saying is that history is his story. And even while, you know, he waits to finish the story, it's very evident that God is the author, he's the director, he's the main character in this thing we call life. As you look back here at Acts chapter 17 that we just read, this passage is a reminder that there's nothing ordinary about God. It teaches us that God determines both the times and the places in world history. Uh, he sets the course of, of, this, of, this, of history on earth in motion. You know, He determines, for instance, when this world began. <clears throat> and he has written out on his timetable when it's going to end. He, he alone decided, for instance, when the world would, renew, would start again after the flood, when uh, Abraham would leave Ur the Chaldees and make his way to the land of promise. It was God who determined when Moses would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. And, and so throughout, he's just searched throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you're going to find hundreds of examples of God's hand active in the events of mankind here on this earth. And folks, that's still true today. I mean, he may allow an evil ruler or an injustice to, uh, to exist for a time, but it's not going to prevail. Here in Acts chapter 17, it says that he does this. Did you catch that? So that people will seek him and find him. In other words, God is in the business of drawing people to himself. And so through history... We see the sovereignty of God, that He is ultimately in control of all the events of our, of our world. The third thing, we see God's actions in our lives. We see God's actions in our lives. I mean, you can see the, the actions of God in the Old Testament, the New Testament, and He's showing in very powerful and very personal ways His care and His concern. I mean, look at things like the, the fall of the walls of Jericho or uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, or you could look at uh, the widow of Nain whose uh, son Jesus raised from the dead, uh, and many more stories of God actively involved in people's lives because He cares for them. He cares what's going on in their lives. Now, maybe your story, maybe my story is not like that of Joshua or, or Elijah. Uh, maybe they're not that dramatic. But they're real anyway. God works in our lives and they're real ways in which He works. Maybe you've seen God restore a relationship that you thought was just blown and it was never going to be put back together. And God can do that. Maybe uh, God brought a miracle of healing to you or to a family member and, and He was actively involved in your life. Maybe it's a habit that you have that you thought, I will never be able to break that. And, and God came and He broke that habit in your life. Or maybe He gave to you peace in the midst of a storm of turmoil. 
and he's active in your life. And for that matter, every one of us who are believers have experienced the action of God in sending his son to give his life for our forgiveness so that we could have forgiveness. And, and so you see, his actions on the cross are, are dramatic and and it's personal. I mean, it wasn't just a historic event. Yes, it was a historic event, but it's also God's personal action in your life and in my life. He died for you and He died for me. And so as we contemplate God's work in our lives, we see the personal nature of God and His closeness, His imminence with us. So folks, God is real. And we see that through creation, we see it through history, we see it through His personal actions in our lives. But a second thing we learn about God, not only is God real, but God is revealed. God is revealed. You see, when we seek to understand who God is, let's don't make the mistake of thinking that uh, we've got to be some kind of spiritual Christopher Columbus, and we've got to go sail forth, and we've got to go find and discover God. Because that's not accurate. Here's the truth. God is not discovered by us, but He reveals Himself to us. God is not discovered by us. God is revealed to us. He's revealing Himself to us. Um, see, that, folks, there's no way that you and I are ever going to discover God, okay? No, God must reveal Himself to us. And even more importantly, we, we've got to, uh, to really avoid trying to invent God on our own. I mean, we don't have the energy, we don't have the in ingenuity to determine the truth about God. God is so much greater than we are. And so He has to reveal Himself to us. And so to un for us to understand God, God reveals Himself to us in three different ways. First of all, it's God's general revelation, and then God's special revelation, and then God's personal revelation. Let's look at those three real quick. First of all, God reveals Himself to us through His creation. We, we've mentioned that already. But in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, Paul said this. He said, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Remember, I, we just said that God reveals Himself to us in three different ways. Through nature, through history, through His personal interaction in our life. Well, theologians call this general revelations from God. That's the general revelation. Creation, active in history working in our lives. That's general revelation. And yet, and you can see God through those things, and yet God really wants us to know more about Him than just that. And so the second thing, God reveals Himself to us through His Word, the Bible. God reveals Himself to us through His Word. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter said this, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke from God. You and I need to remember that the biblical prophets, they really weren't predicting the future. That's not their job. Rather, they were those who received a message from God and they passed it on to the people. God would speak to them and then they would tell the people the exact words of God. 
And so whether it was Moses, you know, who was receiving the, uh, the Ten Commandments, excuse me, on the mountain, or Jeremiah, who was dictating his prophecies to his uh, secretary, Baruch, who was writing them down on a scroll, uh, it was the word of God. God spoke to them and, and uh, they told it to the people. In the New Testament days, men such as Paul, such as Luke, they wrote down the words that the Spirit inspired in their hearts. And so those writings are called God's special revelation. So general revelation, he reveals himself to us through creation and history. Special revelation, he reveals himself to us in his word. And then the third thing that we mentioned is that God reveals himself to us through his son. And that's personal revelation in our life. That is, folks, God became man. Uh, Jesus coming to earth is more than just general revelation or special revelation. It was God's personal revelation himself to us. Look at John chapter 1 verse 18. It says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So in other words, Jesus reveals God to us. He came to give us an understanding of God. Again, in uh, John writing in 1 John, in his first epistle, chapter 5 and verse 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come, and He has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God, and He is eternal life. So Jesus came to help us to understand who God is, to give us uh, an understanding of God. You know, if you want your dog to understand what it means to be a human, what do you do? You become a dog, okay? And then you can explain to them what human beings are all alike. Well, in the very same way here, to explain God to us, Jesus became a man like us. And so, folks, we don't have to figure God out all our own, on our own at all, you know. God's deepest desire for us is for Him to be able to reveal to us what He's like. And you know what? There is no prayer that God will answer quicker than when you and I pray, God, show me what you're really like. He will do that. In fact, He's already answered that prayer. He did that in the coming of Jesus Christ to this earth. And so there's nothing more critical that, you know, that for us to understand that Jesus shows who God truly is. That's who God is. Look at Jesus Christ. That will tell us who, who Jesus Christ is. And if your belief in God is wrong, if you've started off on a bad foundation, if you've got a, a skewed idea of what God is like, it doesn't matter how devout you are. In fact, if you're devout, it means that you're more and more and more lost than you ever were. Because we need to start with a basic understanding of who God really is. And so in survey after survey, 90% of Americans believe that God is real. Um, you know, for most people, the idea of does God exist or not exist really isn't a question. It's not an issue. The real issue is, what kind of God is He? And what does Jesus reveal to us about who God is? So not only is God real, not only is God revealed, but third, God is relational. That's who God is. God is relational. I don't think there's a better picture of who God is than the parable that Jesus gave us that we call the, you know, the parable of the wayward son and, and the father's love. 
You remember the story. A younger son of two sons came to his dad and said, Dad, you know, I'm ready for my inheritance. I'm not going to wait till you die. Give it to me now. And he took his inheritance and he went off into the far country and he spent all that money on riotous living, just living it up and spending the money like it, where there was no tomorrow. And then when he ran out of money, he got a job feeding pigs and he was so hungry he thought about eating pig food. And finally he came to his senses and he says, I'm going to go back home and, and I'm going to beg my dad, please give me a job as your hired servant. And so in Luke chapter 15, beginning of verse 20, it says, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son and embraced him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate a feast. For this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And so the party began. You know, perhaps the most significant part of this parable is, the, is that picture, that statement about the father that he ran to his son and he embraced him and he kissed him. You know, in, in that culture, in the culture of the first century Jewish world, no self-respecting Jewish man would ever, ever run it just wasn't done. You didn't do that at all. And yet, here is his father. He didn't care about convention, the traditions or whatever. He was just eager to embrace his son. And so in this parable, we see a God who loves us so much that he's willing to do the unconventional of coming to this earth to demonstrate how much he loves us by dying on a cross for us. And also in this parable, and, and really for that matter, throughout his earthly life and ministry, Jesus is introducing us to a really vital part of who God is. And that is, God is Father. God is Father. You know, today we probably kind of take for granted this idea of God is Father. We, we just, that rolls off our tongue pretty easily. You know, we, we pray and we say, Father, blah, 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 and so forth. Um, but to the Jewish people, this was basically a foreign concept. They were not at all accustomed to calling God Father. Um, and, and because, you know, not only would they not understand that, but they wouldn't embrace that. God being Father, oh, of course not. We wouldn't say that. And, and so Jesus got in trouble with the Jewish critics because he called God his Father. The first time that we see that is in John's uh, Gospel in the fifth chapter. Jesus has just performed a miracle of healing on the Sabbath day, and the, the critics confront him and, and chew him out basically for doing that on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says this in, in verse 17. He says, but Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. Jesus just called God his father. And, and the critics of Jesus, man, they reacted strongly to this. They said he has blasphemed God. Because he's made himself equal with God. If God is his father, therefore he must think he's God's son. And they called it blasphemy. In fact, in verse 18, So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself 
equal with God. Folks, this was a foreign concept to the Jews because there was very, very little in the Old Testament that gave them the understanding that God was Father to them. Now, there are a couple of hints in the, in the book of Isaiah, toward the end of Isaiah's um, prophecy, that speak of this theme of God being their Father. One of them is Isaiah 63, beginning at verse 15. Um, Isaiah is praying, he says, Lord, <clears throat> look down from heaven, look from your holy, glorious home, and see us. Where is the passion and the might you used to show on our behalf? Where are your mercy and your compassion now? Surely you are still our father. Even if Abraham and Jacob would disown us, Lord, you would still be our father. You are our redeemer from ages past. Now, <clears throat> we might read something like that and, and, and we might immediately think, well, he's talking about God being father because he is the creator of all mankind. And so therefore, you know, he's creator and we're the, we're the creatures that he's created. And so therefore, he's our father. That's a common idea today. You hear people, it doesn't matter if they're in church or out of church, Christian or not Christian. Uh, they'll make that statement, well, we're all God's children. Okay, that's not what this passage is speaking about. Instead, it's speaking not of God as father creator, but it's speaking of as God as father redeemer. Uh, <clears throat> what he's talking about here, <coughs> excuse me, is the covenant relationship between God and Israel. Isaiah is talking about that very special relationship that they had because God chose Israel to be uniquely his own people. And he redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt. That's what he's talking about here as father. He, he's your redeemer. He's one who's bought you out of slavery. He chose them to be uniquely his own. And then you go back to uh, all the way to chapter 64 there in Isaiah and verse 8. And it says, and yet, O Lord, you are our father. We're the clay and you are the potter. We are all formed by your hands. So these two passages here in, in, out of Isaiah really form a critical link in helping you and I understand what it means for the first person of the Trinity to be called father. God as our father. Um, and, and what I want us to, to grasp here is that God as Father has nothing to do with the fact that all mankind were created by God, okay? Uh, yes, we're all of God's creation, but no, not all are His children, nor is He the Father of everyone, okay? Grasp that. In fact, the Apostle Paul, uh, John, in his prologue to his gospel, really gives to us a criteria of what it means to be called the children of God, what it means to be able to call God Father. He says this in John 1.12, But to all who believed Him and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. You see the criteria there? It's not just that, hey, you've been created, you were born here on this earth, therefore God's your Father and we're His children. No, the criteria is all who believed Him and accepted Him they got the right, the privilege, to become the children of God. And so, with this teaching of Jesus, the whole relationship of God and His people took on a new light. Here you see the qualifications to be called a son or a daughter of God. 
It comes through trust and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It wasn't simply in Jesus' day that they were descendants from Abraham. It wasn't some kind of biological kind of kinship that they had. No, it was a spiritual kinship. And in fact, Jesus reiterated in this passage that his critics were not children of Abraham. They were not God's children. He says, you have another father. You have a different father. You're the father of Satan because you're doing his works. Well, of course, that infuriated the Jews that he would imply that they had a different, different parentage, okay? And so in, in chapter 8, verse 41, listen to what they said. We aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Now, I want you to note the irony here. This is great, okay? The very thing that they had criticized Jesus of doing, of calling God his father, now they're claiming the same thing for themselves. No, you know, God is our father. God himself is our true father. Uh, how ironic is that? Criticize Jesus for saying that, but it was okay for them to say that. Now, Jesus is later on going to teach his followers to pray, Our Father, and, and to really begin to see God as Father. As you track through the gospel records, one of the things you're going to see over and over again is this idea that, that God is to be looked on as Father to those who follow Jesus Christ. And here's the key thing. Scripture teaches in the New Testament that God relates to us as a father, as a perfect father. He, he wants to meet our needs. And um, as his children, we can count on our father to do all those things that a father would do for us. Now, let me just put a little parenthesis right here. I recognize that for some people, you didn't have a good father. Maybe some didn't even have a father to speak of. Your life was ruined by your father. And so when we talk about God as father, maybe you have all sorts of negative kinds of emotions and connotations that come up because you can think back and you can reflect back and you could say, man, if God is like my dad was, I don't want anything to do with him. What I want you to realize is that God is the perfect father. He's the father that you never had. He's the father that you really need in your life. Let me just give you a quick list of the ways that God as father relates to each and every one of us. And as I do this, I want you to listen for one of these that really resonates with you to say, that's what I need from my father today, my heavenly father today. Um, how does God meet our needs because we're his children? Well, the first thing that I would mention is our Father is willing to make sacrifices. You know, we talk about parents making sacrifices for their children, fathers making sacrifices for their children, and that's all well and good. But look at the sacrifice that our Heavenly Father made for you and me. He sent His Son into this world to die as our Savior. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So maybe right now, in your life, you need to come to understand and realize and hold on tightly 
to this idea that God loves you so much that he's willing to sacrifice for you. Paid the ultimate price that you could be, a, be his child. Or, or second, our father has compassion and love for his children. Maybe that's where you are right now. You need compassion. You need love. You need God's care in your life. Look at Psalm 103.13. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. Maybe right now what you need to sense more than anything else is how deeply God cares for you. So nobody cares? Yeah. You have a heavenly father who cares. Or third, God reacts to us or relates to us as a father in the way he guides us. Our father guides his children. Proverbs 3.12, for the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. So let me ask, when was the last time you asked God for guidance in your life? As your father, he wants to do that. He wants to give you the wisdom and the counsel and, and, and the direction in life. Because you're not going to make it through life on your own. You need God's counsel, God's guidance in your life. Number four, our father knows our needs before we even ask. He knows what you need. Matthew in his gospel in chapter 6 verse 8 records these words from Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. He says, your father knows exactly what you need even before you ask him. Uh, Again in in, uh, that Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 verse 9 through 11. Jesus said, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? You see, when we're praying to God about the needs in our life, we don't need to do that because He needs to find out about that. He already knows the needs in our life. Why do we pray? Because when we pray, we're showing that we're absolutely dependent upon Him. We're saying, God, I've got to depend on You. God hears those prayers, and he, he knows our needs before we ask, and He meets those needs. Paul said again, My God will supply all your needs through His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And then, another thing, as a father, God rewards us. He rewards us. We, we sometimes have this idea that God is looking down on us to judge us as His children. God doesn't judge us as His children but He will correct us and He will reward us. He delights in the fact that we belong to Him. And one day He's going to reward our faithfulness to Him. And then the, the, the next thing is that our Father encourages us. He encourages us. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and by His grace gave us eternal comfort and wonderful hope, may He comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. Some of us need to just be honest this morning and just say, God, I am really feeling down today. Would you just encourage me? I need your encouragement. And like a father, God will do that. Maybe just picture yourself crawling up into your father's lap. 
and letting him hold you and soothe your wipe, you know, stroke your hair and soothe you. You can cry on his shoulder. God can do that for you because he's your father. And then another thing, our father makes us his heirs. He makes us his heirs. Look, listen to this passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and following. <clears throat> it says, <clears throat> so you've not received a spirit that makes you a fearful slave. Instead, look what we have received. You received God's Spirit when He adopted you as His own children. Now we can call Abba, which is a term of endearment. Now we can call Him Abba Father, Dear Father, Daddy-O, whatever you want to call Him. He's the dearest thing to your heart. We can call Him Abba Father. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. So God's Holy Spirit affirms that we belong to God and that He is our Father. And look at verse 17. And since we are His children, we are His heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. You ever thought about that? We're heirs to the glory of God, to all that He has in store for us. And He goes on and says, but if we're to share His glory, we must also share His suffering." Recognize that the sufferings of this life are, are part of what this world is all about. But where there's suffering, there's also going to be reward as the heirs of, of God the Father. So do you ever just find yourself rejoicing in those eternal riches that God has prepared for you? God loves His children, folks, with, with a love that can't be fathomed. I mean, this is an incredibly wonderful truth. That God is our Father. So how do you know that God loves you so much? How do you know that He really wants a relationship with you? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. That says it all in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. The cross shouts out, God the Father loves you as his child. Let's bow for prayer. Again, I know that maybe you have a hard time thinking of God as Father because maybe the poor Father that you had growing up. And maybe one of the greatest breakthroughs in your life would, would happen if you begin to realize that God is the Father that you never had. Uh, that you could see God as the Father who will fulfill what your Father never was to you. Would you just pray quietly with me in your heart to say something like this, God, I now accept you as the Father I never had. I was disappointed by my Father, but you will never disappoint me. I never knew my earthly Father, but you want me to know you want to know me. I was hurt by my earthly father, but I am healed by you. I was ignored by my earthly father, but I have your full and complete attention. I could never meet the expectations of my earthly father, but I can find freedom from expectations in your grace. Others of you, maybe you had a, a, an earthly father who, you know, maybe wasn't perfect, but man, he gave you the kind of love that um, put you on the road to really finding a relationship with God 
through Jesus Christ. And maybe you would join me in this prayer to say, thank you, God, for my earthly father. No, I know he wasn't perfect in the way he raised me, but he was good and, and he was kind and he was a man of character. And he made decisions in his life that helped me see just a little bit of what you're like. Decisions that made it easier for me to get to know you. Thank you for the gift that you gave me of my Father. In your name I pray. Amen.